0: Bethany gehrman Merkel,
1: And I'm Virginia Shudi, and this is Meteor, the honest podcast about science communication with impact.
0: The world's a mess right now, and it can be hard to feel hopeful that what we do can actually make a difference. But as we're seeing again from so many long-term organizers and activists, hope is a verb. So our guiding
1: principle for this season is saying yes, and how saying yes makes room for action, accountability, impact, and even hope in the realm of SciComm.
0: Before we get started today, you should know our last episode for this season will be an open Q&A. Send us your questions, ideas, puzzles, and dilemmas by September 6th, my birthday, and we'll fit in as many as we can for the September 8th episode.
1: All right, so on to today's episode. We feel like there are lots of great SISCOM spaces already devoted to entry-level skill building. They do it so well. So, we would like to share instead some of the advanced user conversations that we're already having by text message
0: and by phone call with each other. And we want to open up these conversations beyond just us. We really appreciate hearing what you think and we have all season. You can keep doing that on Twitter or through our website, both of which are linked in the show notes. Okay,
1: got my football stance on. And today we are tackling some questions about expertise. Who defines expertise? who actually is an expert? Is there like an objective truth there? And what responsibility goes along with being designated an expert? And I think that at first glance, this may seem a little bit similar to the visibility monster thing. But I think our point with the visibility monster episode is that visibility does not automatically equate to expertise. So let's talk about mm-hmm. expertise thing. Let's get into that today.
0: And Virginia? Virginia? I know you have a story to share that kind of got us rolling <laughs> on this topic in the first place. So. Yeah. Take it away.
1: Okay. So I remember being at a conference, oh, last year, sometime, time is weird. And I was listening to someone give a presentation. It was a scientific study on communication. Um, oh, I'm not going to give too many details. So I'm still a little nervous to talk about it. Essentially. They said the people who work in this particular digital space are divided into scientists and institutions like scientific institutions and amateurs and i just was like what (laughs) because i know a whole bunch of amateurs who make working in that digital space their entire paying job and those are the people who are reaching millions of subscribers in that digital space Every day with science, science news, science explanations, science help, science education, science edutainment. And I just classifying people who are not affiliated with academia as amateurs made my blood boil. And so I was like then we have to talk about who gets to define expertise, because I feel like this is a commonly recurring theme for me now that I define science communicator more broadly than other people I encounter. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there are ways of having expertise that are not officially acknowledged by unjust systems. And I am so disappointed when I see science communicators following the systems lead.
0: Yeah. And of course, this also jives with our last episode about jargon and things like expert and amateur would fit right into that combo too. Yeah. I think generally here, the point is there's a no-go and that person crossed it for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, and they could have just called it non-institutional <laughs>
0: creators or something, but instead they said the word amateurs. Oh. Right. And here, and here we are going, no, these people are experts. Like they, if you want to know how to reach 5 million people on YouTube in a week. That's who you talk to.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's who you should talk to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I think fundamentally, and I want to say this out loud in case someone hasn't thought through this um, for themselves before, I, I feel like this idea of expertise being traditionally defined as belonging means that um. you know, You will be excluding people who have not been traditionally favored by the system. And we see this in all kinds of ways. For example, if your organization is hiring someone and you are looking for, quote unquote, the best candidate, that probably means you're going to favor people that have traditional measures of excellence like, I don't know, test scores or grades or something like that. And there is so much literature about how those traditional measures of expertise are correlated with all kinds of stuff that doesn't necessarily mean potential to excel in the organization.
0: Or even ability to get into the applicant pool or access, I shouldn't say ability, even access to ultimately be in that pool.
1: Yeah. And then the other reason that expertise designations matter are because we ignore then whole groups of people when we're talking about information as well. So for example, when I lived in Louisiana, nobody is more of an expert on local fishing and local wildlife and habitat than the people who have lived on the bayou their entire lives. If you do Mm -hmm. not call those people experts, you are ignoring so much that you could be working with and cultivating and like, using to better yourself instead. But the people who tend to think of those folks as non-experts are the ones who are valuing, again, those traditional, like, do you belong to my group of, you know, PhD having academy kind of background, that kind of thing. So I do not enjoy when expertise is tied to belonging, which means there's an other group.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you're mentioning the Bayou knowledge as a specific example because in a lot more cultures than we're conditioned through science training to think of, community defines elders and determines who receives respect and what we would, you know, what we would likely interpret as expertise. It's it's not always about elders or experts self-identifying. And definitely, as you're just describing, that can play out as gatekeeping. But I do think there's this mutual responsibility or reciprocity that I at least personally have experienced as being really, really valuable and essential to meaningful SICOM work in a lot of different settings, not exclusively with any particular cultural group either. In a lot of different settings, I might have a certain kind of expertise, but I sure as heck don't have all the expertise that we need.
1: Hmm. That reminds me, my kids... (laughs) my kids went to a particular preschool and we we talk about knowing things or not. And their motto at the preschool seemed to be everybody knows something, but nobody knows everything. And Mm. I'm just now, I mean, I, I loved it at the time, but I'm just now realizing that like, what a great foundational attitude to be teaching kids because fundamentally that's what we're saying here. Everybody knows something. Nobody knows everything.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I think, if we want to come back to my original point, you do not have to insult people along the way, right? Like, like you can talk about the things people know without <laughs> using a derogatory term. So I want to, I want to catch on the one thing that you mentioned. So you were talking about who, like self-identifying as elders or experts versus like outside people identifying or electing or somehow designating people
0: as experts. Um, Can I just clarify? I don't think I would say it would be outside. I think it would be like the community that you belong in. Sure. Kind of confers or perceives that on your behalf.
1: Fair. I guess I'm thinking of it as if I am me, there's an element of expertise where it's like, do I consider myself an expert? And there's an element of expertise where it's like, do others consider me to be an expert? So I guess that's yeah. what I meant by outside, but you're right. I guess you were talking yeah. about the community designation. So yeah. if we, but if we latch onto this concept of self kind of evaluation or identifying as expertise, I feel like there's also a huge like kick in the pants <laughs> component to this when I'm, when I'm doing my SICOM work. So for example, I was doing a training a couple months ago. And uh, people were talking about how to put their best foot forward on their resume or their CV or something. And so I was coaching them through kind of how to get keywords and how to designate how to describe their actual job. And Mm -hmm. I was saying, like, I want you to just sit and think for a minute and write down kind of keywords or an outline. What makes you special? Mm -hmm. And someone raised their hand and they said, what if we don't feel special? Oh, right. I, I remember being like, what (laughs) i don't i'm not prepared for that kind of a response like it was it was was heartbreaking to see this person i think genuinely come from a place of there is nothing that makes me special in my career um and so i i i think i there is an element of imposter syndrome here of course to self-identifying and like kind of owning your own expertise But the kick in the pants part for me, I want to come back to this, is that, you know, whenever somebody talks to me about imposter syndrome, I counter with, are you feeling imposter syndrome, which is normal and like, okay, that's part of being a
0: human. Yeah, humility is a good attribute.
1: Yes. Or are you feeling ousted by a system that was not made for you? Mm Mm-hmm. Because you and I have talked behind the scenes a ton about how people will often blame imposter syndrome when the system needs to be changed, fixed.
0: Yeah, self, yes. self-doubt and humility are not the same thing. And a lot of self-doubt is a response or a symptom of external pressures making you doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could, I we could add imposter syndrome to the jargon list. I think <laughs> the way that we use that against ourselves almost is not productive. Mm-hmm.
1: But I think you know we were talking science communication is necessarily science adjacent, and science in its most academic sense, there is a literal committee of people who have to sign a like literally sign a piece of paper to say you're expert enough every time you dance through this career path right so like a committee of people more than one person has to decide you can get into grad school then they have to decide that you can defend your thesis you can go through your qualifying exams you can have a thesis proposal you can move on to Canada there are all these steps and I feel like if you've gone through this the academic system you are taught that that is the way it is other people define your expertise. And this was one of the weird career transition things for me was relearning when I was allowed to take ownership of my own expertise, when I was allowed to self-designate and then act as if I deserved to be there because I was an expert too.
0: Totally. And I, I have conversations with folks about this a lot. I think this is part of what makes a career in science communication really hard. Mm. We effectively have close to zero equivalent benchmarks. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. How how do you know you've done anything good? How do you know you've made anything good? We do a lot of metrics around how many people interact with a thing, but we also know fundamentally that head counting is not always very meaningful. Yeah. yeah, I I think this is really interesting. and, And maybe part of what we're saying here is that at our career stage, we're telling people to believe in themselves, <laughs> but that can be hard if you have nothing to gauge it on. And then there are maybe some folks who need to check themselves. <laughs> <So> <laughs> how do we fighting <laughs> no, well,
1: like, how do you
0: balance it?
1: <laughs> but I think the other thing is part of the job is often cheerleading for other people. So mm-hmm. when we are training, we're the ones who are trying to push people one, one way or the other on the scale. When we are talking to scientists, this was a thing I realized my second week uh, being the media department for a marine lab is my favorite part of the job the time was um, being a cheerleader and seeing people who had never been told that their work was interesting, seeing them just light up and not because people told them their work was terrible, but because they'd never had somebody following them around, like in the field with the camera being like, oh my gosh, it's fascinating. Tell me about it. Right. So there was this cheerleading component to my job from the very beginning when I was a public information officer. And it's just so bizarre to have that be baked into the job and Then like telling some people move this way or that on the scale, usually encouraging them. I don't know who I've told to calm down really (laughs) ever. Um, (laughs) But then at the same time, returning that, using the mirror to reflect it on myself, it just feels like the scale is broken. When I look at myself, it's like, no, we have not calibrated this. And so it's not happening.
0: Mm. That's interesting. I think when I think of check, yourself it's like the folks who show up in the room like they know everything that's Mm -hmm. more what I was thinking about and sometimes that's a science communication person who's like well let me tell you how to do science communication and sometimes it's a person with science knowledge who's like let me just crack your head open and I'll dump a bunch of information in and there you go thank you now you're set Uh, those were the kinds of things I was thinking of to carry on with your thought of like cheerleading people I'll give you an example. I've considered starting hosting mentoring sessions as part of the function of the Y-side drop-ins that I host. Usually, they're more around you know, consulting on doing science communication. And I'll just give you an example. Last fall, I met with a couple of different junior faculty, each of them individually. It just happened that way. And one in particular just doesn't see herself as the total badass that I think she is. I mean, she obviously she knows she's smart, but she's not really like owning that the way I would love to push her to. She's running research on top of what's really a massive teaching load compared to anyone else in her department. And as we talked about the kind of psychom that she wanted to do, she just couldn't see how to fit that in with everything else. Hmm. And it it just became clear to me that she was not feeling like she could resist the overwork that she was experiencing because she didn't actually see that she was being taken advantage of.
1: Oh, so her ranking of herself and her expertise, she was like, no, I deserve this because I'm not whatever level she thought of as deserving of something different.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, she's, she's early enough in her career that she probably just felt like she couldn't say no to stuff as part Mm -hmm. of it. And then also I don't think she has fully gotten to the point where she's like the things that I want and need to do are enough of a priority that I can and will push back and like take back my time. And one advice that I gave her was to maybe apply for something like an award or a position, even at a different university. And of course that's even extra work, mm-hmm. but like we were talking about in season one, I think if she was putting together her CV or resume or any kind of application, sh- she would have to see what she does accomplish. Basically. I think of, I think her doing something like that would be a mechanism for owning her own awesomeness. And, and maybe that would help her feel like she has a right to set some boundaries.
1: This is fascinating because we're talking now about how expertise, like owning your own expertise. So the self-designation component can help you gain control because mm-hmm. you decide that you are in a position to take risks or to set boundaries, or to like, just claim respect as an expert that you wouldn't feel like you could, if you were still on the trainee, or the kind of, I need more mentoring route. Um, This is, so I, I think correlating expertise, not just with like, hey, here's the thing, you know, and people recognize that you know it. But like, here's the control I have over my designated career space, and the risks and branches out that I'm making. That's, that's fascinating.
0: I like how you're saying that because it's, it's making me think like we're talking to ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't just mean, well, wait, I'm what I'm do talking. you mean? Are, you're not talking <laughs> literally, are you? <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm talking. Yeah, not, not in the, we are having this conversation at this moment, but uh. like as much as I want her to hear me when I say what you think you want to do matters and you have a right to claim your time for that, uh, <laughs> this is what we talk about all the time. Yeah. You know, say say no so you can say yes.
1: Yeah, but I hear you that, you know, we say this all the time, get yourself a Beth Ann. get yourself a Virginia. It is just so much easier to hype other people up than it is to hype yourself up. And so I feel mm-hmm. like this is why community is so important. Um, and, and I feel like it's it's a role that you can take, is to like help other people see their expertise, even when you don't see it in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I do wanna, I do wanna make sure we get to at this career stage. I was about to say that most of the time I feel fairly confident and that's like not true. But also <laughs> also someone asks me to be an expert, most of the time I can assume the role of expertise even if internally I'm like I don't know if I deserve this. Like mm. I think to myself, "Oh, well if they're coming to me and asking me to assume this leadership position and give advice, it's like, well, you know, okay." I, I can do that. Like I will do this even if I don't feel it internally. So I'm, I'm talking about helping people, even if you don't feel great internally, I'm talking about also accepting like positions of, of leadership, even if you don't are not always a hundred percent, like, yes, I'm an expert, but then I think where things get shaky for me are, I have been asked several times to deliver training on uh, justice and like how to promote justice through Psycom. And I don't know that I will ever feel like an expert in that. When I had the first invitation come through, I thought, you don't want me, I'm sure there are people that are better than me at this. But they'd already hired me for a three, a a series of three trainings. And and I thought, well, okay, what's the alternative is if I say no, who else are they going to get nobody because they already like committed they've budgeted this money for me. And so I at least know more than them. And so, okay, fine, I'll do this. And and I think their feedback made it clear that I definitely had a positive impact on them. And so that was great. But I also think that this is an area where I hope that I never do feel like an expert because integrating DIJ principles into my work is something that I feel like is not a destination to be reached, but a journey. And I think we've talked about this before, but I, I just have never thought about it as not feeling like an expert in that particular area is a measure of success to me because it means my radar is still working well.
0: I appreciate how you said that. And I think what you're getting at there is that as we Arrive at certain stages in our career where we are very comfortable in and confident in certain areas of knowledge and skill that we can share with other people. Mm-hmm. There are other things that we can still learn.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and for me, being open to not being an expert, but being an active learner in those environments is also helpful. For helping me remember that I can help people take those same kind of leaps and risks, Mm -hmm. they maybe are a little earlier or even beyond where I am on thinking about certain things. But then I maybe have experienced some things that I can help them with too. You know, it's kind of a, a to me. A lot of this is about community at our career stage. You know, there are there are folks I work with, and I'm like hang on, I want to talk to you about the words you just used. Hmm. And I will get a little deficit model on them even and be like, I need you to understand. There's a reason why we don't say it that way. But most of the time in the settings that I'm in today, there's things I show up and can share. There's things I expect to learn. Yeah, And and I, I love that I feel like I'm in a stage in my career where it's It's like it's collective learning in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. Okay, it's time for us to wrap this up. I feel like I almost want to challenge us to define what expertise is then. (laughs) 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 So for me, I think what we're saying is being an expert means that you possess shareable skills or knowledge in a particular area. And I'm just going to stop there. How do you feel about that?
0: I think it's perfect, honestly. And I think it relates to something that you and I have been mulling over more recently, which is if you show up as an invited or like self-identifying expert in an arena, how much feedback do you need to validate that expertise? And we've been talking about this with the podcast. We'll probably never know what kind of impact this podcast has on a lot of people and the people that download and listen to it. Like those numbers are not the reason that either one of us are doing this. Mm -hmm. And so I also feel like part of expertise is being able to share some kind of knowledge or skill or perspective. And part of it is also being comfortable with not having total control over how that expertise then gets used out in the world huh
1: so knowing that you will not see the effects of what you do oh that's interesting
0: yeah because I think if I just sit here saying I can only do things that I can see a direct impact from Uh I am limiting the scope of what I can even work on And I feel like that narrow scope is a little more of a kind of a beginner mental framework. Yeah. You
1: know, I'm I'm thinking about too, both of our definitions that we just gave had a shareable component in them. But the more I think about it, the more I think that's wrong, because I think there are people who have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised who have not been able to share their stuff. And so does it classify as shareable, but they're Mm -hmm. still experts. And so I think, If we really want to just define expertise, I think the simplest way to say it is people who know something
0: Mm -hmm. in in Mm -hmm. some kind of area.
1: And Mm -hmm. when you use, honestly, if you use that definition of expertise and you keep it that simple, I think it's probably going to make you come from a place of respect more often than not. And I can get behind that hundred percent.
0: I like that. So over to you listeners, how do you feel about being called an expert? And what's one thing you're really good at? That you can help other people with.
1: You've been listening to Meteor, the honest podcast
0: about science communication with impact. To join this conversation, tell us what you're good at. You can do that on Twitter using at MeteorSciCom, or you can submit a note on our website, MeteorSciCom.org.
1: Talk soon!